although I lead with trust, I recognize that not everybody else does. And yeah, that's, and, right. and that's okay. I mean, I, I'm like, they said that I was like on the 99th percentile of that, uh, you know, and <laughs> 99 sounds good. It's not necessarily good. Right. I mean, there's, there, there's, there's some good elements to leading with trust and then, and then there's some bad to it as well, just like mm. every other personality uh, characteristic that a person can have. So, so I realized that although I may lead with trust, um, that a lot of my team may not initially trust me and they don't know me, right? Like, so, so how and why would they trust me unless they're just wired the way that I am to, to offer it up first. So, so I think I've, I've, I've tried to take it upon myself to build that trust. I think trust within a management team is just one of the most, and on any team, not just a management team, but on a sports team or any team is just amongst the most important things that you can have having a team that really trusts each other Trust each other that when somebody says they're going to do something, they'll do it. Trust each other that, you know, they kind of got each other's back and trust each other that if something's going on, they'll tell them to their face. Welcome to the World Class Leader Show. This is the one and only podcast for ambitious and high achievers, professionals who want to become world class leaders. In this podcast, we deconstruct the success of high-performance leaders, share their stories, and teach the most effective strategies to move from average to greatness. This is your host, Andrea Petroni, a high-performance and leadership advisor, executive coach, and keynote speaker with more than 20 years of international and executive corporate experience. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to a new episode of the World Class Leader Show. And today I'm very happy to have with me Iggy Domagalski. Iggy is the president and CEO of one of the Canada's longest standing and most diversified industrial providers and service providers. Prior, he was the CEO of Tundra Process Solutions, a leading Western Canadian supplier of industrial process equipment. And before that, he started his career in, in finance at Investors Group and Richardson GMP in Winnipeg, and later became president of Western Industrial, an air compressor manufacturer in Vancouver. Iggy is also an avid community, community fundraiser and has served on the board of the Learning Disabilities Association, the International Society of Automation, and the Kids Cancer Care Foundation. Iggy holds a Bachelor of Commerce degree from the Asper School of Business, where there is an award in his name that was created by his fellow students and has given away annually since 2004. He has been named one of the Canada top 40 under 40, so congratulations, Iggy, and one of Canada's 50 most inspirational entrepreneurs. He lives in Calgary, Alberta with his wife and two daughters. Thank you. I'm, uh, I'm very pleased to be here. Thrilled to join you. One of the things, Iggy, that it's quite interesting from your profile that you have been CEO of uh, uh, Tundra Process Solutions for four or five years. Is that right? Yeah, I was a, I was a CEO there for it was around six or seven years. And then prior to that, I was our chief operating officer at that company. Before talking about your current role, but what do you think was a major reason why you have been successful to become a CEO? Sure. Well, that's, um, maybe I can rewind a little bit. Um, in my time as chief operating officer at Tundra, those were, those were really, really fun years. Uh, we, um, 
uh, a mentor of mine who who became my business partner. Um, we bought some companies in Western Canada, and we started doing that about 15 years ago. Uh, we were fortunate to be a part of about a dozen acquisitions, many of which we kind of folded together into a, into a few larger companies. Uh, and then we were also part of about a dozen startups, which was very exciting too. And so, so those years were very fun, uh, very aggressive growth. Uh, we grew the company organically at a rate of around 30% a year for over 10 years. So that wow. was, it's a, so it's, it's, a, it was a quick growth rate and that was just, that was just a ton of fun. And as a chief operating officer, my, my sole job was basically just to keep the train on the tracks. And when you're, when you're <laughs> growing that fast, uh, you know, you just a lot of things need to happen in the background for the company to continue to be successful. And, and we were a small business when we started. So even things like implementing, uh, you know, an enterprise level um, ERP system and uh, and, a, and a customer relationship management system and HR systems and all of those things. We didn't have any of those when we started. Uh, so it was just really fun, exciting, fast growth. And because it was so fast growth, it was really fast learning. And so I learned a, a ton during those years. Uh, and then there, there came a time when um, my business partner, he was a he was the chairman and CEO of the company, and he mm -hmm. wanted to start pulling back a little bit uh, and only be the chairman. And so, you know, me and him talked about me succeeding him in the role and 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 it worked out. And and I think it was maybe one of the reasons was we, we had worked for together for so long. So there was a level of comfort, but also just the the next evolution of the company. And that evolution was really more around uh, people and culture and uh, and really investing in our people, making it a place that people really wanted to come to work, where they felt valued uh, and and felt that we were doing something good. So we increased our community engagement, uh, increased our brand story, just to make people really proud to be a part of what was you know a pretty small company still. Um, but whenever I would talk to you know marketing and branding folks and just people in the community and in the business world, they always told us that we seemed to punch a little bit above our weight class in terms of brand and uh, and. And what we were at and what we were doing out in the world. Um, so, so I think because of um, you know because of that strong brand that we were able to create as a team, uh, we would we would get calls all the time for people wanting to buy us. It's kind of the nature of being a privately owned yes. company. You have, you have strategics and private equity folks always kind of knocking at your door. Uh, and then the pandemic came, and a couple months into the pandemic, I get a call from somebody wanting to do the same thing. And it was the president of a company called Wayjax, uh, which is a very proud Canadian company, been around over 160 years. Uh, we knew of them. They were in our industry. And they thought, well, you know, the, the pandemic might be a weird time, but um, maybe something good can come out of a weird time. And we've been, he, he told me that we've been looking at you from afar for five years and you know, maybe now might be a good time to do something. Uh, so I, I spoke with my partner, who was the majority shareholder of the company. You know, he was he was now wanting to take the next step away. He was chairman and CEO six years before. Then he was chairman for a while, and now he wanted to take another step back. And he had a lot of other interests and philanthropic things that he wanted to do. Uh, so we thought this might be a good time. So we sold the company and uh, and to Wayjax. And so now I was reporting to my predecessor, the, the the president of Wayjax, we got along great. We got to know each other really well, and uh, and and I think he you know, he appreciated some of the things that we had built at Tundra. Thought some of those could be useful uh, at Wayjax, and I, I kind of thought the same way. 
Uh, Wajax has been, it's, it's a wonderful company that's been around. We, we are in our 164th year of business. So we're actually nine years older than our country, Canada, yeah, uh, which is crazy. Kind of, which, which is kind of neat. And, uh, and, and, but despite that, you know, we, we don't have a stated purpose, mission or vision or, or, or a written down set of core values. And, uh, and we've been, we've been slowly starting on a journey to be uh, a little bit more people first company, but we're just in the infancy of that. And, and those are things that I'm really passionate about building, building a strong brand, strong community presence, investing in our people, um, and making it a place where people really want to to be a part of, and so I thought, you know, I, if I could have the chance to do that all over again, just at a little bit of a bigger company, that would be really exciting. And the board seemed to agree, and uh, and my uh, the, the my predecessor, president of the company, seemed to agree. So I went through the whole process to be considered for this role, and uh, and that's how I got here. So I guess so I guess to to answer your question, you know, how do I think I got here? I I think it really has to do with uh, with the belief that people are your most important thing that you have in your company. Mm-hmm. And we, we, we are not particularly, you know, a, a, an intellectual property heavy company or a fixed asset heavy company. So, so we, so our competitive advantage isn't a bunch of computer code or a bunch of really expensive machinery. Our competitive advantage is the 3000 people that we have across the country that serve our customer in their community on the daily. Um, so, so I, I think that, I think that was probably something that our, that our board was was liking and and wanting to invest in, um, and and I just believe that you know that you do that because it's the right thing to do, but it also drives pretty good business results. I mean, what what company wouldn't do better if their people, you know, really believed in the company and wanted to do their best for the company and really wanted to be at work? What company wouldn't do better in that circumstance? Yes. Uh, so so I, so I think that's uh yeah, that's 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 how I got to this role, and it's been a it's been a really fun uh, change and an interesting change. Uh, Tundra was more of a mid-sized company with about 150 people, and Wajax is 3,000 people, so it's 20 times bigger. So it's a it's a very different way uh, of leading. And within the previous business, I knew everyone. You know, I I, I had hired most of them, and uh, and I knew their spouses, and uh, and I knew some of their kids, and uh, so I so I just so if you wanted to ever convey a message you would just walk down the hall and tell them and and, and have a conversation yeah. about it. And That's now different. there's many people, there's many people in our company that, that I know that I'll probably never meet yeah. uh, just because they're, they're in a, in a far off location that I might not get the chance to get to, uh, although I'm trying, uh, but, <laughs> uh, so it, it's a different way of leading and a really interesting, it's been the most, uh, the most amount of learning I've ever had in my career was in the last year, uh, as I stepped into this new role as president of Wajax. Yeah, and that's actually amazing how you describe your journey and and get to the point where you are right now. You said before, our company, the Wayjack, is not much about IP, doesn't have a specific technology, innovation solution. It's really more about people. So it's really the core of the business. And and I suppose that has been in the market for so many years, as you described. So there is something very good in a company. So what really makes different, a difference in, in the market in terms of value that Wayjack does comparing to other players that are probably operating in a similar space? Is the size of the organization, is the service that you provide, the quality of people? So, you know, if we need to select one element that makes, you know, Wayjack different than others in the market, what that could be? That's yeah. That's a that's a great question. I I really do think it's the it's the people, and I'll I'll just elaborate on that a little bit more. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so we've got over a hundred branches across Canada uh, in every major community uh, and a lot of small communities. And, and a lot of those folks have been with our company for a long time. I've met people who have been with our company for 50 years, some 45 years, 35 years. Like those, those are normal, normal numbers to hear about when I, when I visit those branches and I've been to 75 of our branches and, wow. and visited the people there um, over the last year, which, which was a lot of travel, but I think really worthwhile. I really wanted to see the business for myself. And um, the, the, the common factor that I've found is the people in our branches just really, really care about solving our customers' problems. And, and, and I think all the words in that sentence are important. I mean, they care, which is very, very important. Uh, and, and about solving their problems. There, there's a lot of companies uh, who are distributors, and we're a distributor. We, we sell uh, industrial equipment. So we, we have a, a heavy equipment business where we sell excavators and forklifts and engines. And then yes. we have an industrial products and services business where we would sell all the, the widgets that would go into a facility. So if you can imagine a bearing or a hydraulic cylinder or a motor, uh, we, we can supply and service all of that gear. And so we're, we're a distributor and a servicer of other people's products. So we don't even have our own products that we sell. We, it's others that we sell. And, um, but our people are just so darn knowledgeable. They 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 really know the product inside and out, and they really care about solving our customers' problems. So when when a customer calls in, you know, if they don't have the part number, that is okay. And uh, and I, and I know that at, at some of our uh, competitors, you know, they're more uh, box movers. They're 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 high volume. What's the part number? How many would you like? And I'll send it to you. Uh, whereas our competitive advantage is we're more technical experts in the products, mm. and we also and we also have the service capability to work on pretty much everything that we sell. So I think it's the it all does come down to the people, but it is the it's the people who truly care about our customers and have the ability to solve their technical problems and not just say, okay, what's the part number? So I, I think that's. That's why we've been uh, successful. That's why we've made it through every economic cycle that the world <laughs> can throw at us in a couple of world wars. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's it's the people and and their their desire to do good for our team. Yeah, wonderful. You, you said I was a CEO before of a much smaller organization. Now I get to lead three thousand people across Canada with a different location, etc. How have you adapted and ch or changed your leadership approach from leading a smaller team to a larger team? Because I, I suppose the challenges that you face every single day are different than what you faced before, regardless of the type of business. It's just, you know, size matters. That's definitely, that's probably one of the major difference, I suppose, from, from what you just described. If that's the major challenge that you're facing right now, what are the other challenges you see now leading a very different type of organization? For me, I think there's two main things that are quite new. Um, the first one is is just the, the, the size. And uh, as I was alluding to a little bit before, I can't just, if I, if I see, a, if I saw a problem in my previous business, um, you just kind of had a gut feel for what was going on. You know, if, if there was a group of people who were, causing a commotion about whatever, you know, there, whether it was a workplace culture issue, a compensation issue, a teamwork issue, a product issue, whatever it was, you kind of had a pretty good gut feel for it. And you could just go over there, have a conversation and 
figure out some kind of solution. Mm. Uh, now, now I don't have that. I mean, first of all, it's a brand new company. I was at my previous company for almost 15 years. Now I'm brand new here. So I just don't have that institutional knowledge. Uh, and, uh, and I just can't, there's, there's just too many people to be able to, to know that these three people are really having an issue. So, so I think I really have to, uh, I've evolved my trusting of leaders and I always did trust our leaders. And I always, I thought that our, our, our culture at Tundra was, was quite good at, uh, at delegating authority and uh, and allowing the leaders to do what they needed to do. But you would still, as as the CEO of that company, I would still know what was going on in most of the parts of the company. Mm, yes. Uh, here, here, it's really full trust. Uh, given the full trust to the leaders uh, and saying, go, you go solve it. And I probably don't even need to know about it and probably never will know about it. Um, so that's been, that's been different. Uh, and then also I find getting messages truly down to our front lines is a bit of a challenge um there's a there we have a a group of you know about 30 top leaders in our company uh communicating with them is is fairly easy uh most of them i i have on my calling list so i'll you know call them once a month and just catch up um and and then we have a monthly meeting where everyone reports on what they're doing but there's a group of about 400 people leaders that report to those people, mm. and they're the ones that manage the front line. So a very a, a normal example of one of our frontline leaders would be a service manager, which I think is probably the most challenging job uh, in the company. And they might manage a crew of five or seven or 10 field technicians. That's a hard job. And getting whatever message you know I, I have to convey to those technicians, I have to do it through through that service manager. And communicating with that group of 400 people, I found to be, um, I found to be the biggest challenge. Is how do you get messages to them clearly and on a consistent basis uh, without chewing up too much of their time because they're very busy people. Uh, so that's so I think that's been the challenge is communicating all the way down to the front lines. Uh, and then the other challenge, which um, which I've encountered, is it's there's more stakeholders at this company. So mm. at my previous company. Uh, you know, it was a very mid-level kind of company. Um, there was myself and a chairman of our board, and he, we didn't really even have a board. He was the sole director, uh, major shareholder. So I really had one main stakeholder, and we talked all the time. So if I had, we had a decision to make or something to do, I'd call him up. We'd talk about it. We'd say we'd do it, and we would just do it. Uh, now, we're, uh, Wajax is a publicly traded company, so there's just more stakeholders. So we have a board of directors, uh, all of whom are new to me, who I'm getting to know and who are wonderful, but it's still you know, eight new personalities. Uh, we have uh, investors, uh, and we don't have a single you know, tenant investor that owns a big chunk. It's all a bunch of smaller ones, so getting to know them. Uh, and then we also have uh, bankers, and we also have analysts who cover our company and write about our company. So there's four of those folks. So I kind of went from having one stakeholder to about 20. And uh, and I think that the term that I read most recently was it's something about the CEO's role being the intersection of contradiction, which I <laughs> thought was interesting. The intersection of contradiction because everyone's got an opinion and everyone's got a legitimate stake, right? Like your, your directors, they have a stake. The analysts, they have a stake. Your investors, they have a stake. Uh, and so how do, you, how do you manage all of those sometimes completely polar opposite perspectives and demands? Uh, so, I, so I didn't have that before. So those are, those are the two main buckets of challenges I think that I've been experiencing that I'm really enjoying tackling, but the, the answer is not easy. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, that's wonderful. And I appreciate also the openness because, you know, these are challenges. They are not easy to solve and, uh, and understand that you're working anyway, very hard on, on dealing with that challenge. I would like to go back to, to some of them, because I, I think it's interesting. You mentioned before that you need to have a level of trust that you don't, I mean, you always need trust, of course, in an organization. But before, it was much easier to build trust based on the personal relation that you have with your people. Now, there is a little of faith, right? So you need to start trusting people, even if you don't know them personally, because that's the situation where you are, you are on. What has been maybe your, your learning about trust? So, you know, we normally trust more people when we get to know them. You know, we establish a relationship and then we know whether, you know, we give trust or not giving trust to people. But when you face a, a much larger group of people and there is no other way than trusting and, and see, you know, what they can, what, what they're capable of and what they, what they can do with that. What has been your, uh, your learning about trust in your first year of, as a, you know, being a CEO of Wajax? So it, when, when I was first interviewing for this role, um, it was it was a, a lengthy process. Uh, mm. So wh whenever whenever a board of directors is hiring for uh, a CEO of a publicly traded company, they usually go through. It's a pretty rigorous process. It's just it's just how it's done, and so they hired an outside firm to do a really really deep analysis on me. And I was excited to do that because I'm I'm a sucker for personal and professional development. I love doing it, and um, and so I try to really live that. At our at our previous company, learning matters was a core value, and uh, and and it, and we're starting to really do more of that at Wagex now too. That um, that I've had some time here. Uh, so I had this opportunity to go through what essentially was described to me as the most detailed, deepest 360 you've ever had. Mm. And so the company that they hired there, they actually put three people onto, onto the file to interview for this, for this role. And there was me and a bunch of other candidates that were going for the role. Uh, and one of them was a psychologist and all of them had been doing it for 30 years. And their whole job is, you know, getting into the head of CEOs and CFOs. That's all they do. So I remember my first interview with these folks, there was me and three of them. And the interview was four hours and, and like, they're like psychologists. So, yes. <laughs> so you realize that you, you, you can't hide, you can hide for, you can beep and wob, bob and weave for 30 minutes, maybe, but you can't hide for four hours. So I just, I laid it all out on the line, gave them all the information. Uh, I also did a lot of psychometrics tests. So the kind of the online tests where you click on what would you do in this situation? And then it gives you a bunch of reports back and then they download those reports to you and ask you more questions about the reports. And so they did a really good profile on me and they promised that, you know, they would share that with the board and regardless of the result of the competition for the role, that they would share that with me. And I was really happy to be able to do that. I was really fortunate that I got a chance to go through a process like that. Uh, so they did. So they shared everything with me. Uh, and I was excited, you know, to learn about some blind spots that I might have. And uh, one of the things that came out, which no one, I'd never explicitly been told or thought about was that I lead with trust more than more than most like i'm kind of on the you know the 99th percentile or however you want to measure it of, oh wow of trusting and so and and then as i thought about that i realized that that was true and so i uh i lead with trust and i tend to give trust before it's earned uh which which leads me to you know, typically I'll give people more chances, maybe more chances than deserved, uh, but that's my nature. Uh, and also I, I start by giving trust and, 
you know, now it's now it's on you to keep that trust. But I'll, I'll give it to you first. Uh, but if you ruin it, then it's gone. Yes. Um, uh, but but I usually tend to give a, a few chances before it's fully gone. So so that that's that's how I approach trust. I think that's how just how I've always been. So trust first, give the people the benefit of the doubt, allow them, you know, give them all the rope that they need, hopefully not to hang themselves. Um, but give them give them the freedom to do what they need to do. Uh, and it, it's 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 worked for me. I I've found that I've not been burned too many times by that. Um, you know, I think some people might try to take advantage of that a little bit, but in general, I think it's it's just worked for me and my personality. That that's very interesting. Now, here's the challenge: some trust. Uh, you know, you can as a CEO just the fact that you are giving trust to people. It's you know, it speaks highly about you, and I think it's for me, it's an incredible way of being and showing, you know, your leadership. The question is sometimes in very old style organization or very, you know, people that have been always working in the same organization for many years, they tend to, I'm not saying that is wage acts by all means, but I'm saying they tend to be very protective, right? Protective of their roles, protective of their power sometimes. So have you noticed any particular challenge for you to drive the same level of trust with your executive team, with your people, or you think the organization was already well um, designed or aligned around very high level of trust? Because sometimes, you know, we our personal approach about trust is different than what the organization are used to work, right? Or used to be as a collective team of people. Yeah, that's uh, that's a good one. <laughs> Although I lead with trust, I recognize that not everybody else does. And yeah, that's, and, right. and that's okay. I mean, I, I'm like, they said that I was like on the 99th percentile of that, uh, you know, and <laughs> 99 sounds good. It's not necessarily good. Right. I mean, there's, there, there's, there's some good elements to leading with trust and then, and then there's some bad to it as well, just like mm -hmm. every other personality uh, characteristic that a person can have. So, so I realized that although I may lead with trust, um, that a lot of my team may not initially trust me and they don't know me, right? Like, so, so how and why would they trust me unless they're just wired the way that I am to, to offer it up first. So, so I think I've, I've, I've tried to take it upon myself to build that trust. I think trust within a management team is just one of the most, and on any team, not just a management team, but on a sports team or any team is just amongst the most important things that you can have having a team that really trusts each other trust each other that when somebody says they're going to do something, they'll do it. Trust each other that, you know, they kind of got each other's back and trust each other that if something's going on, they'll tell them to their face. Um, and so, uh, so I've been working hard to, to build that with our team. I think it's working. Uh, and, uh, and I'll be definitely doing more of that in 2023 with just some more intentional kind of team building, trust building exercises that are usually facilitated. Uh, and so I, so, so we'll be spending more and more time on that. My, my first year was that that was a priority, but my main priority for the first year of this business was just to understand it. Uh, yeah. and that's why I had a chance to get out to 75 uh, of our branches, building relationships with our leaders, our board, our shareholders, our analysts, just, just understanding the full cycle of how everything works as well. And now I, I'm, I'm by no means an expert yet, but I've, I've got enough under my belt that I can switch gears a little bit in 2023 and and our and our our main gears that we're having in 2023 is continuing to build trust uh rolling out uh you know a, a a clear vision for the company with a clear set of values some strategic planning around that uh and continuing to build a culture of people first so that's 
that's now that now that I've kind of know what I'm dealing with, that's what we're starting to to push a little bit more. Um, and and I think all of those things build trust, uh, whether it's with my direct team or other people in the company. The message that I've been trying to send is uh, a lot of a lot of the words that I've used here today is that I think that building a company uh, or building a, a culture within a company where people really like coming to work, uh, where where they you know they feel that they are trusted and respected and that they trust and respect the company that 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 that's good. And that, and that's what I'm trying to build. And slowly, we're putting in programs to show that. And and I get feedback from our front lines that they feel it. Uh, so so that's that's what we'll be continuing to do. I think to to build trust in our organization this year. It's and it's a it's it's a never ending journey. I remember in my previous role at Tender, we thought about culture every day, and and talked about it every day. And and because of that, I think we built a really really wonderful culture that was that was envied by a lot. Uh, but it didn't just happen magically. It no. did happen. It happened, but with a daily grind of thinking about it and making little tweaks so that it can be as good as it can be. Yeah, wonderful. And I suppose the fact that you are spending a lot of time visiting the branches, going around, I think is really helping you not only to show up as a leader, but also to instill probably the level of trust with others. So I think it's it's a wonderful, not just a strategy, I think it's just a wonderful way of leading, you know, and not isolating yourself in the office because that's one of the problems many CEOs unfortunately do. You know, they tend to get isolated in their own office and dealing with important stuff, but forgetting about, you know, talking, communicating with the front line with other people. It sounds like you are actually spending a lot of time there, which is great. Um now, I mean you 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 mentioned multiple you know multiple stakeholders. So you have more conversation maybe than before with people and trying to find a way to get everyone aligned. I think one great expression I got from actually a CEO that I interviewed a few weeks ago, he said that one of the major real job of a CEO is connecting all the dots that are happening in the organization. And I think that is really, really underrated by many, you know, connecting things that are happening without necessarily having full control of what's going on or the expertise, the experience to shape that specific conversation, but just being able to connect in things. And I think many people don't understand that about CEOs. They think the CEOs, they just need to make a decision on everything because that's, you know, that's at the end of the day what matters. And the reality is letting conversation get to a point where people get committed and take action. Is that right? That's, that's your approach in managing multiple stakeholders at the same time, especially when there is no consensus, when there is when are different standpoints. Is that right? Yeah, I, I've always found that I've I've always I've tried to be a consensus leader. Uh, if you know, if you if you talk to uh, the teams that I've worked with, they'll probably tell you I'm a I seek consensus sometimes to a fault. Okay. Um, and and that sometimes like I, and I've and I've had people like our, our my chief operating officer who I, who I've worked with for a long time. You know, he's, um, you know, he, he's told me before. He says, you know what? Sometimes you don't need to take us along on the journey. Like we trust mm. you. So sometimes just say, this is where we're going. This is why we're going there. And I need you to come along and we will, and it'll be fine. <laughs> and so, so I've, I've found that I've kind of tried to do consensus sometimes to a fault. Uh, and now it's, it's definitely harder. Um, there sometimes there's just diametrically opposed views on something and they're, and they're not changing. And so the way that I've approached that is, is uh, I always start off with, I would prefer to have consensus. If pe if we can find a solution that works for everyone, let's do that. If you can't amongst yourselves, 
then my job in this role is to be the tiebreaker. And you know, I'll, and I'll and I'll make a decision with all the information. I'll tell you why I made it, and then and then once once that decision's made, we really need to have everybody on the same page. Like whether you agreed with it or not in the first place. Once we've decided that this is what we're doing, I need everyone to walk out of that room and say, this is what we're doing. And I support it um, just because it's it, one of the most destructive things in organizations that I've seen is, you know, you walk out of a room, you made a decision, one or two people didn't agree with it. And then they're, the verbiage around it from them is, this is what we're doing, but I didn't support that. I think it's the wrong thing to do. Um, that that can be quite, uh, quite destructive, I found in a culture. So we try to try to frame it in such a way that, you know, even, even if you didn't agree with it, you now support it. Um, so that's been, that's been a helpful way of, uh, of thinking about the decision-making process. But, but as you, as you say, there's a, you know, connecting all the dots is, uh, that's definitely a big part of the job. And there's a lot of dots to connect in this company, more dots than I previously had. But what, what I find really nice in a new role is that I didn't come with any of the previous baggage from my previous role. Mm. And maybe maybe baggage is the wrong word, but I'll just give you an example. Um, in my previous role, um, when we signed uh, the building, the lease for our building, our, our main building, um, I did that a decade prior when we were a much smaller company. It would have been a totally normal thing for me to do. And I just kept the relationship with the landlord. So anytime something came up in around the building, I said, well, I just got the relationship. I don't mind calling them. I'll just, I'll, I'll deal with it. And uh, there, there was a hundred things like that. And so, so there was, there was just things, legacy things that because of certain relationships uh, I would end up doing. And I think every leader in the world has this. And now I've come into this new role where I don't have any legacy, anything. Mm -hmm. uh, and we also have um, more support and a really interesting quote or phrase that I heard from my predecessor, uh, just a wonderful, super experienced, super talented leader by the name of Mark Foote. Uh, he said, you know, the bigger company you lead, the easier it is. And I, I said, <laughs> I don't believe you. I don't believe you, Mark. But, but as I, as I kind of, as I got into this role, I, I understand what he means. And I think back to my days at Tundra, 150 person company. If there was a major tax issue or a major legal issue, I was involved as an example, tax, tax or legal. Of course I would be involved. Now at, at Wajex, we have a director of tax and we have a chief of legal. And so when there's a tax issue, they do it and, and I don't need to do it. And when there's a legal issue, they do it and I don't need to do it. And, um, and so because of that, just as you get larger, there's a little bit more, more experts. Um, you don't have to stress out about trying to be the lead on something that you don't understand in the first place that well. Um, mm. and you can really focus on the things that only you can do. And so as I came into this role, one, less or no legacy baggage and two more experts to do things, which actually really does allow me to focus on the things that I should be doing. And when I finish most days and I look at my calendar and I think, was I, was I working on things that I actually should be doing? Or am I getting pulled into things that I shouldn't be doing? Almost every day I look back at my calendars and I say, I was doing things that I should be doing today. I was doing nice. things that only I can do, um, and so that's been uh, that's that's been a pretty good feeling at the end of the day, if you can say that. Wonderful. I, I actually I love this approach, and actually lead me as well to to the next question is, how did you change your your habits, your way of leading your your day, your personal life 
you know, with a new challenge? Because, you know, sometimes when we face a completely new challenge, and to some extent, you are facing a new challenge anyway, right? It's not just in your organization, but also the size organization, the challenges, the stakeholders. How did you adapt personally to the new to the new change? As I mean, in other words, did you change anything or you, you kept doing what you were doing before? You, you gave us, you know, some example about how you're managing the calendar, but in terms of what else is happening, you know, behind the scene, how changed, how did you change about it? Uh, so I think the, the biggest personal change uh, was, was kind of around the personal and family area. Um, I mean, you're, whether I was running Tundra or Wayjax, you know, there's kind of a, a chunk of time in the day where I do all the, all the work things. Mm-hmm. Um and you know what? While the while the the tasks are a little bit different, it's still that those are the work things. Um, when I think of the personal things, I travel a lot more now. Um, so I live in Calgary, Alberta, which is in Western Canada, and uh, we had four branches, all that I and I could drive to all of them. Uh, you know, I could like be there and back in the same day, or maybe a one one night overnight. And uh, and now I still live in Calgary, but our head office is just outside of Toronto. Uh, which is about a four-hour flight. Uh, and then we have these 100-plus branches across the country, which I like to get out to. So I travel a lot more. And, and that that is a that is a fundamental difference in your personal and family life. So before I took this job, my family and I, you know, we, we talked about it a lot and we made, you know, some pacts about things that we would do and wouldn't do. And and one of the things that we agreed to was that, you know, when I, they'll know my travel schedule a long time in advance. Uh, and if they need to do stuff kind of on their own planet on those days when I'm gone and when I'm here, let's really be intentional about being together. Let's try to limit the number of nights where everyone's on their electronic devices and, and really focus on maybe playing a board game. Or if, if we're going to do something electronics, like let's all cuddle up on the couch together with our dog and watch a movie and order and pizza and, you know, have, but have a, a family night. And so, so I've actually found that the the family time that we have together, even though it's a little bit less than it was before, it's much more intentional. So it's, it feels like it's more, even though I'm home less. Uh, so I, so I think that's been, that's been a big thing. Uh, and then just making sure that I'm keeping up with, uh, you know, like physical health. I like to, I like to run and, you know, go to the gym, kind of do, do those kind of things and, uh, making sure that I'm making time for that, which, which I am. And that, and that feels good. And I do it on the road too. I kind of build that into my schedule in the morning. So, um, if whatever hotels I'm going to, I make sure that they have a, a gym that's open 24 seven and yes. uh, that I can get, that I can get to it early in the morning. So it's, uh, but it's, it's been, it's been, it's been good, but that's been kind of, I think the major personal change just around family and managing it. Cause I mean, it's a, it's a cool opportunity. I'm thrilled to be doing it, but there is no opportunity that's cool or interesting enough in the world to destroy your family over. And, uh, and I've, and I've seen it happen where people take on really busy tons of travel roles and their family really suffers. And it, it just, I wasn't, I wasn't prepared to do that. Well, how many times, right? We heard uh, leaders say, maybe when they when they get to their sixties or seventies, you know, I regret not having spent enough time with my family. How many times have we heard that? So I think your approach is just wonderful, and I love what you said in terms of being very intentional with the time spent with the family, and that's really for me, it's it's a wonderful advice for actually those people that are in the audience today. Maybe they're struggling with that. I was actually listening to. 
a few months back to an interview of the CEO of a major automotive company. And he said, I regret on not having spent time in my, with my family. When I was with them, I wasn't there at all. I was thinking about the struggles, the challenges I have in, in the business. So I think what you just shared is a wonderful advice for everyone. Um, maybe the last question related to this before we end with the final Quinn days, Vicky, is on the business level, you mentioned already some changes in terms of, you know, you're traveling more now. Uh, you need to to talk more, to spend more time with the with the people uh, on the front line. You speak, you spend more time with the stay uh, with the stakeholders. Is there anything else? Maybe one other thing that you changed as a leader, as a CEO, uh, in the last year that you made something that you maybe you weren't doing before. Is, is there something else? It's it's a different team, uh, mm. a completely different team. So everyone is new to me on the on this management team. So I think just uh, just trying to get to, in my previous role, I kind of knew everyone. I'd worked with many of them yeah, for a yeah. decade plus. Uh, so it was, we kind of, we had a, a better rhythm going. And so I think really just establishing that rhythm, getting to know them as people a little bit more. I find I'm spending more of my time just learning about them and about their business and about what they do in, in the business, as opposed okay. to um, just moving the ball forward as I was doing in my previous role. So I think, I think that's a little bit different. And uh and, and and I'm also in a different city. So there is a there is an inherent challenge that I live in Calgary and I'm in Toronto. And so the way that we manage our schedule, which I think has has worked quite well, is uh, I give our direct team um, my my schedule three months in advance. And I say those are the days that I'll be in Toronto, which is which is which is often. I'm there every second week uh, for a few days. And I say, let's let's make those days our together days. Like try not to book too many outside meetings, try to leave the calendar flexible, leave your door open. And let's do all of our collaborating and working together in person in Toronto. Um, and then when I'm not there, I'm flexible. Like we, we have one of our senior leaders. He's got a place in North Carolina. I'm like, if when you're doing your stuff where you're just focus work on your computer and it's only you and you don't need other people, uh, I don't care where you do that. So I think get, really giving them that flexibility um, has been something that's been been new to me. And this, the, the, this Wayjack's company... It, it was doing remote work and online meetings way before the pandemic, just because of the distributed nature of the business. So that's been that's been new to me, but I like it, and it works for this team, and it works for me. So it's been a kind of le leading more remotely has been a new thing for me. But it's not just because of the pandemic; it's because of the nature of this company and how it's been uh, even before COVID. Wonderful. Great. All right, Iggy. So final uh, question. So to understand a little bit more about you as what is one thing that one thing that you learn across your career? If you think to only one thing that has been the major learning opportunity for you. I think it's about people. And when you're, you know, when you're young, you're just, you're dumb. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and you're, uh, you're just less self-aware and you're less aware of others. And so I think the 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 one lesson that I've learned, not over just over my career, but of my life, is that everybody is going through some massive internal battle that you really don't know anything about, and mm. maybe we'll never know anything about. And so I think that just appreciating that and trying to understand why they're doing what they're doing. I mean, sometimes people do things that seem totally crazy and stupid. But they're not crazy and stupid to them. And so, so trying to put yourself in their shoes and understand why they would have made that decision and seek to understand more than, you know, just dictate and tell, I think has been 
the biggest lesson that I've learned that is, it's helped me understand things better and I think be a better leader. Yeah. Putting yourself in other people's shoes and, and, and see, and try to understand what they see in their own world. Right. So I love this. Um, on the other hand, is there anything that you would have maybe done differently in your career? I think, I think it's related to the previous question. You know, I I think I would have been softer Mm -hmm. in certain things, you know, and really, I should have tried to understand the other person's um, situation. But, you know, when, when you're younger and you're aggressive in your career, you kind of, you know, rule a little bit harder with an iron fist. And, and that, uh, you know, so, so I had some, I had some moments in my career where I thought I needed to be harder and mm-hmm. I did, and it wasn't in my character, but I did it. And I kind of forced it through and, um, and I, I, I would probably relive those a little bit differently. Wonderful. Well, that's great self-reflection, by the way. Wonderful. All right. Final question, Iggy, is what is your approach to learning? I mean, you said before, learning has been always very important for you, also from a personal development standpoint. But if I'm thinking about reading, for example, is there any book that made a huge difference? By the way, do you love reading books? So it's something that you do. If you do, is there anything that really made a difference or made an impact maybe in your personal life? Yeah, that's uh, I do like reading. So um, I read a lot of books. Um, I read the newspaper. Uh, I have a couple of blogs that, that that I'm interested in, and a couple of podcasts that I like. Uh, and then and then I like uh, courses as well. So I'm I'm enrolled in a couple of courses right now uh, related to uh, being a, a board director. Um, okay. So I uh, yeah, so I I always love learning, uh, whether it's you know kind of a formal classroom style or more just reading on my own. Um, yeah, there's there, there's lots out there. I think one of my favorite books is called The Happiness Advantage by Sean Aker. And it, it's all about um, trying to be happy first and figuring out how to do that. And then success will come, not the other way around. Happiness never comes from success. It's, it's usually the other way around. Uh, but then the trick is, okay, well, if I'm not happy and I'm not successful, how do I become happy so that I can become successful? <laughs> And that's what the book talks about. Yeah, it's a great book, by the way. Fantastic suggestion. We'll put in the show notes. Wonderful, Iggy. Really, I love our conversation. Where people should go if they want to find out more about you and your company. LinkedIn is the best spot. Iggy, thank you so much for this conversation. I enjoyed it so much. And again, thank you also for, you know, for being very open, transparent about you, your journey, and I wish you good luck. Thank you for having me. Much appreciated as this is a very interesting topic i really would like to hear from you understanding what you think about this so please send me any comments either uh, on linkedin or you can send me via email at andrea at andrea you can find anyway these links on the show notes and um, and by the way if you like what we shared i strongly recommend actually to leave a review because you know as a podcaster we live with reviews so the only way for our episode and our podcast to grow is by having positive reviews. So I appreciate that. And also sharing with your friends and colleagues if you think that might be interesting. In final note, I normally um, summarize the findings of each episode, even the ones with the guest, uh, on my website. And I write every Thursday a very interesting uh, short summary about what we share. So if you don't want to miss that and you prefer uh, reading, I strongly recommend going to my website, www andreapetrone.com slash blog you can subscribe there I'm not sending any sales thing it's just 
big good insights of my experience with the podcast and my work with clients so thank you so much for listening to this episode and i look forward to seeing you next time